Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we're back this week to discuss 2000's The Cell, directed by Tarsim Singh. Uh, at that point, simply going by the name Tarsem, um, which has is, is changed throughout his career, which I'm sure we'll address. Um, the, the Jennifer Lopez vehicle meant to no doubt uh, undoubtedly propel her career to the next level. Um, unfortunately, this film was, was caught a bit in that sort of disastrous step into film by Jennifer Lopez in the early 2000s. She recovered. She got into her Matthew McConaughey comedies and, uh, and did just fine, of course. Uh, but this was an early Jennifer Lopez uh, film role. Um, so th- this is a weird one. Uh, it did do okay. I guess that's where we'll start. Like, obviously, we're here to talk about film failures. And I think this is ultimately a failure. It was sort of critically drubbed at the time. However, there was one reviewer that felt that this was the best film of the year. Um, can you guess the name of that reviewer? I'm going to go with Roger Ebert because I when I was when we were watching this I I just kind of felt like I bet Ebert really enjoyed this. <laughs> ding ding ding, you are correct. Uh oh Roger Raj. Ebert gave this Roger Ebert gave this four stars, said that it was one of the best films of the year, thought it had incredible imagery, thought it juggled multiple storylines with a lot of capability was really into Tar Sims uh, overall sort of visual style, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, he was one of the few that championed this. Uh, I think he even had it in one of his Ebert film festivals down the road um, because he found that it was such a, a sort of intriguing film and, and interesting in a time when many of Hollywood's films were, you know, well, it, we were talking about it before we got started recording you know we have a a lot of current controversy with filmmakers like martin scorsese and quentin tarantino going on podcasts or interviews or whatever and sort of talking trash about the current state and and to make it clear i don't think they're talking trash i think they're just talking about their industry like the same way that you sit around with anyone who has similar job or works in the same industry as you do you just talk about it and now because the internet is such a vibrant hellscape they can't talk about their own jobs anymore. It's, Elon's going to take care of that for us oh. by, by killing Twitter. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're good now. Elon's here to solve our problem by <laughs> ending the ability for people to share their thoughts through a <laughs> microblogging format online. Um, no, but I, I, I agree 100%, right? It's it, The Internet is such a, I mean, hellscape, yes, but it's it's such a place where these sort of toxic elements of fandoms rise to the top so quickly, you know, and and take something that, as you said, is is industry talk, right? Because these are conversations that are not just being had. These are the conversations being had in the private square as well. Like you can't tell me that all of these film executives love being dependent upon comic book movies to keep their film studios afloat. They definitely don't. Because they can't take credit for them, right? Like, yeah. that's the thing. Like, like Bob Chapek, now excised you know, head of Disney. Bob Iger's back, everybody. Um, you can't tell me that he loved having to, you know, kiss Kevin Feige's ass in board meetings to make sure that Marvel keeps pumping out the hits, right? And even if they do, 
Kevin Feige gets all the credit for that, not Bob Chappick, right? And in Hollywood, it's all about getting that cred, right? I mean, we talk about like TikTok clout. Hollywood's been playing that game for like a That's one of the reasons they hate years. TikTok so much. All these filmmakers totally. think it's garbage. Like, I don't understand why these kids are getting clout and I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I should be getting that. I made a whole film. You made a 15 second video of you lip syncing to a... <laughs> Fleetwood Mac song, right? Like, you know, how is this fair? Uh, You know, so, so I think you're right. And, and I guess, you know, if you want to finish your thought from earlier, that's, Um, that's I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's just, it's just that I think it's tragic the way that people take what is meant to be like legitimate criticism and they're, they're taking it as some kind of insult of the thing that they like. Right. It, It was never that. It's it's talking oh. about an industry. It's like it's one of those those moments where I want to take every fanboy by the shoulders and shake them and say this has nothing to do with you. Um, <laughs> but that's that's part of where the the internet solipsism comes from, I guess. Everything has everything to do with me. Right. The internet has made people believe that their opinions have as much weight as as people who have like actual ability to talk on main character on syndrome. Right, exactly. Um, which I'm I'm sure will be a topic of future films as people wrestle with the fact that they're not the main character of the world. Um, but I mean, I, you know, if you look at what these people are saying, really all they're saying is that they they don't appreciate that Hollywood's not willing to take big risks on original film, right? And ironically. In his review of The Cell, Roger Ebert says basically the same thing and says that The Cell represents one of those experiments, one of those tries at something. And and he was sort of bewildered that a lot of his critical, you know, sort of contemporaries sort of hated it. He said, I, I, I even had a section of his re- review, a whole couple of paragraphs, where he said that in general, he tries to not really know anything about a film before he goes in. He just wants to be fresh. Other than, you know, some of the basic production information, who's involved, whatever. But he said before he was able to see the cell, he had a a television producer friend tell him that it was terrible. And then two other critics sought him out prior to his screening to say, oh, what a trash fire, you know, or something along those lines. And he's like, that doesn't happen to me. Right. I don't generally have people like intentionally trying to tell me that a movie's bad before I even get a chance to see it. And so he, it left him sort of bewildered after he saw it. He's like, that wasn't that bad at all. It was actually really good. So he even, he even then was lamenting that the industry didn't seem like it was ready for a film like this. And I think that's the other problem, right? Is that the reason why film studios aren't willing to take risks on those kinds of films is because the audiences aren't showing up for them anymore. Yeah. They're not going to them. Right. I think, you know, if you look at the kind of films that are being put out, I mean, we have more volume than ever. I mean, there are dozens of movies released every month now um, on various scales and obviously include streaming services and stuff. It gets even more complicated. So it's it's not about Hollywood not taking risks. It's just that I think, you know, Tarantino and Scorsese are responding to what's taking up the mind share. For people and right now people's mind share overwhelmingly absorbed with you know comic book and franchise films um and you know filmmakers like james cameron 
who play in that sandbox and have a new Avatar movie coming out, they're fine with it. They're like, whatever, right? But, you know, you've got your smaller filmmakers. And not even I don't even say smaller, but you've got your your people who work in different confines, right? Quentin Tarantino is not interested in making a comic book film, right? And neither is Scorsese. So they're looking at it saying like, well, I have these ideas and these would make great movies, but I can't really get them made. Or if I get them made, they won't be seen. And that's frustrating for me. And, and I get that, right? Like I understand that perspective. And, and again, anytime you've got somebody saying anything remotely negative about these films, there's just a brigade of morons who sprint <laughs> out of the woodwork to, to start complaining. Oh, Tarantino thinks what I love is bad. I guarantee you Tarantino sees all these movies. Like, of course he does. But if anything, he's hate watching them. Right. I mean, I'm sure he's watching them to be like, oh, this is trash. And I mean, I've got to be super honest with you, right? As you know, as somebody who doesn't really engage with the Marvel stuff very much anyway, you're not really going to be impacted by this. But quite frankly, what Marvel has been putting out pretty lately has been for the most part kind of lackluster. Um, is it bad? No, I I've enjoyed Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, especially when it got Raimi weird. Um, and there's some good Raimi weirdness in that thing. Um, I liked black Panther too, or Wakanda forever. I thought, but I liked that one mostly because I had literally no idea how they were going to deal with the death of Chadwick Boseman. And they did a good job with it. Not that the film itself was anything incredible. I mean, it was, it was good. It was very solid. Uh, still had weird CGI problems at the end. Like, man, I just, I need one of these movies to not end with a big CGI battle. I just really do. Um, I mean, there weren't, there wasn't a blue light in the sky this time, which is nice, mm-hmm. but like, you don't have to do this every time guys. It's really okay. Which is maybe why some of the TV show stuff has been better. Cause it's just forced to be smaller scale. Um, but even still, it's just, it's one of those things like the, these machines that are running now are very good at what they do. And, and I think they're putting out content that people want to see. And that's great. But at the end of the day, I, you know, Tony Gilroy released a statement about people responding to Andor, the star Wars TV show being too slow and him just being like, I don't get that because you have to like build these things and you can't just like be running around all the time, having explosions and stuff. And, and I think that that's part of it is that we've kind of, built an audience now that is looking for a really particular kind of experience. And when you start pushing them towards other experiences, they're not going to them, right? They're not willing to accept them. And that's the problem. Like my goal for like, you know, sharing these movies with my kids is to be like, well, look at these films on this scale, but now let's jump over here and look at this film and see how it's doing a lot of similar things. But you know, it didn't need a giant blue light laser coming down from the sky that the heroes have to punch until it's gone. Like, you know, we can, you can have other kinds of conflicts, but I know not everybody does that. Some people, you know, you have limited time, limited money, limited whatever. And so you're going to go watch that new Black Panther movie because, by golly, you love Black Panther. And I get that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I need to be upset when Quentin Tarantino says Black Panther 2 is not that good. Like It's okay. You know, for me, you don't have to respect his opinion. You know? I would like fewer movies just as I would like fewer books and fewer TV shows. Because I am, I get a bit, um, I struggle 
with like being overwhelmed and my tendency when oh, I'm no. overwhelmed by media is to just stop engaging with it entirely. Just not watch anything. Just like, yeah, I'm just not I mean, gonna watch anything because clearly I'm never gonna catch up. I'm always gonna be behind, so fuck it. I'm not gonna do it anymore. Um and yeah. that and that sucks. Um Sure. So so yeah, I guess I mean circling back around to the cell, the cell. is <laughs> this movie is interesting. And I think it interested Roger Ebert for for sort of a tangentially related reason. It's that you don't see anything like this very often. Like this is not no this is not a movie that comes out, out of of the studio mill, so to speak. Like it's just it's just different. And and that's true of of Tarsum Singh's movies in general, for better or for worse. Yeah, I guess let's let's hit up Tarsim real quick. I, I agree with you 100. Uh, percent The Cell is a non-standard project. I have to think that this was greenlit because of the success of The Matrix. I can't imagine the combo success of The Matrix and Seven. Like that's how I feel. Like the elevator pitch of this went is that this is Seven meets The Matrix. And um, we were seeing and- a lot of like music video influence happening in cinema. Very much so. And. Yeah. You could bring in because I mean that's what Tarsum Singh is famous for, music videos. He is a music video guy. Um, uh, most and, famously, <laughs> REM's "Losing My Religion," which is video. all over the cell, just it's all everywhere. over it. Um, <laughs> and I think that probably David Fincher had a huge, tremendous role in making it possible for music video directors to be auteurs. Um, mm-hmm. Because this was this was before you know people like Michael Bay really really took over cinema. So I I think uh, I think that definitely had something to do with it. But yeah, I don't know that I'm a huge fan of the other music videos that Tarsim Singh has directed though. Um, because he did no, a Madonna I mean, video. He did a Madonna video. Um, he did. Um, he did the perfect oh. drug video. Right, he did do perfect drug video where he's I, Edgar Allan Poe. It's a, a favorite one of mine. Um, I, I actually that, like it. That makes one. me laugh. <laughs> it's <laughs> very, it's very <laughs> silly because it's like Trent Reznor in like a long monk's robe, you know, like With kicking goatee. over things. Yeah, um, it's it's very strange. Uh, yeah, he did a couple of different. Uh, he did the on Vogue uh, hold oh, on yeah. video, which was very big. Um, you know, he did the the sweet lullaby video for Deep Forest, which was surprisingly oh, big. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just he's one of the few guys, I think, anyway, that came out of the music video directing scene and didn't immediately try to change his style. Like he yeah. brought forward the sort of visual style that he employed in a lot of those music videos and a lot of those tendencies in his production design technique into his films. I think which is is pretty rare. I think uh who is the guy <laughs> Don't you love it when things start with like a real vague who is that guy? Yeah, uh who did the the movie he was a music video director who I think did the the creepy one hour photo with Robin Williams. Oh Mark Romanek. Ah ha 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 see you yep. knew the guy I meant. Um mm-hmm. I think he also was another one that that was similar that he didn't change his style that much, but then he just Very didn't so. make any movies. <laughs> he just like stopped yeah, he making kinda, movies. <laughs> he he kind of fell off um, pretty quickly. I mean, he did 
Um, one hour photo in his last movie was Never Let Me Go, which is a really good um, adaptation of Kazuo Ishiguro's book. Um, it's not amazing. It does have Andrew Garfield in it and uh, Keira Knightley, I think. Uh, and that was really his last project. But yeah, he's he's another one that has just this very sort of just a distinctive visual style in in all of his work that he didn't really bother to sand off those rough edges in his feature film work. And and maybe, you know, maybe to his detriment, maybe that's why he doesn't get much work anymore is because he can't sort of adhere to a a house style, right? Like he's not one of those directors that can come in and be like, oh yeah, we'll just do it this I way. I feel like um, if the Marvel movie mill had been running in the early 2000s, it would have been music video directors that oh, they just sure. offered these comic book franchises yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, we'd, we'd have seen, you know, guys like Tarsum Singh. D- doing Black like David, Panther. <laughs> David, yeah. David Fincher would have been offered something. He probably wouldn't have and taken it. He wouldn't it. take it. He'd be like, no, um, fuck you. Yeah. No, after his experience lesson. on Alien 3, you know, he was never going to work on a big studio project like that again. Not without full creative control. Um but yeah, no, I, I think that's a, probably a, a good assessment because that's really what Marvel has been doing is plucking from the quote unquote indie scene to find directors that they, they think are interesting and then bring them in to, you know, sort of adhere to the house style a little bit. Like we've certainly seen breaks from that. Like I said, I, I was shocked at the number of Raimi-isms that found their way into Doctor Strange 2. But at the end of the day, it's still a Marvel film and it looks like a Marvel film and it feels like a Marvel film. Like, you know, which according to Remy was not like intentional. Nobody was like standing behind him being like, Oh no, you can't do that. Nothing like that. But he expected it to be more of a work for higher gig than it actually ended up being. So, so Tarsim comes from the world of music videos. This is his directorial debut. This is his first film. Um, and I, I've got to say it's pretty gutsy to take a film that's this complicated on as your first project, because this is not an expensive movie. They made this for about 30 million. And it, and so it ended up being profitable. It made some money because it got like a hundred million. I mean, the, the, the J Lo bump was enough to sort of get this thing over the line. Yeah. Or, or I'm nasty here. the J Lo, the J Lo bumps, I suppose um, yep. are really, um, cause we, we do get one of those scenes in this film, a, a fairly obvious, uh, you've come for JLo's ass. Uh, well mm-hmm. here it is. <laughs> we do get a bit of that. Unfortunately. Uh, I think, I, I think perhaps a, a good chunk of that was just, um, mandated. Like somebody was like, so JLo's in this. Uh, yes, yes, she is, sir. She's agreed. Um, her, her rate's very fair. I think she's looking to establish herself as a dramatic actress. Uh, so we're going to see her ass. Uh, well, we, uh, but can she I, I'm act? Sure it, doesn't matter, sir. <laughs> I, yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm sure it'll be present, sir. I, I don't know if we were planning on like, you know, filming it specifically. Well, well, here's what we're going to need to do. And then he just had like a, fi- a bulleted five. The executive had like five bulleted point list of like, you know, JLo's ass, uh, JLo's breasts, um, you know, so on and so forth. And, and I, I, I feel Tarsim, you know, sort of resisting that, but I, I, unfortunately it is a part of this film. Um, I guess we can address the JLo thing before we get too deep into the Tarsim thing. Cause I think we'll spend more time on that. She is fine in this. She um, can't act. She is, she is not good. Um, you can tell an, 
there was there was an acting coach working very hard behind the scenes so that every line delivery was not one of the like Ugh, mm, yeah we can work with that oh god oh mm, yeah j-lo no this is good let's try one more time that was uh, a good Steve, take. can you let's do it again yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do it just one more time this time maybe don't say everything with like an, a breathy undertone. Let's try that. Let's try that. Okay. Um, let's do it yeah. one more time, but please, please don't sound like a little girl. Cause that's <laughs> terrible. It's pretty terrible. Uh, so the, the cast in this is good. Uh, JLo is obviously the, uh, or Jennifer Lopez is obviously the, the lead and, and uh, we'll get into her character here in a bit. Um, but there, this is a surprisingly stacked cast especially given that this comes out in 2000 and most of these actors were literally like the next couple of projects that they took would become their career defining projects, which is kind of interesting. Um, so sort of as a co-lead with Jennifer Lopez, although he is technically the villain of the film uh, is Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, who at this point was a pretty well-established actor. I don't want to make it seem like people were like, Oh, who's Vincent D'Onofrio? They did. You um, know what though? I like him in this movie, but they did him dirty with that haircut. Yeah. Um, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very like 70s boy haircut. It's, <laughs> it's very interesting. I don't know if it's meant to imply. Um, so D'Onofrio plays the, the serial killer that they are trying to, ca- to catch or, or understand in this film. And he, he, has a variety of, of mental problems. This is, this is the early two thousands. So we've got a lot of pop psychology going on here. And, and so he's meant to be seen as this kind of childlike figure in a couple of different ways, especially we see him represented. We see him represented in, in multiple different ways, honestly. And, and so one of these ways is his, you know, actual like, you know, out in the world form and yeah, he has like this this like seventies minstrel haircut. It's it's pretty rough. I, I it's a choice. We'll put it that way. It's it's a choice. Uh, it's not the haircut he has across the entire film, but it is one that we see him in very frequently, and it, it does make him look pretty bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get we're not supposed to think he looks good because he's the bad guy, but he is the wow. bad guy, right? We don't we don't wow. need sexy Evan Peters in this no. one. We don't need oh, sexy dear Jeffrey God, Dahmer. No. <laughs> Happy if I never saw that guy again. And the thing is, if the movie was made now, they would totally have Evan Peters doing this. They would have made him. This would be right up his alley. He would have. They would have made him sexy serial murderer, and I just I hate that. So I'll take slightly pudgy Vincent D'Onofrio with a bad haircut. I'll take that. That's fine. Yes, Uh, much better choice for this particular uh, this particular film, in, in my opinion, at least. Um, then we also have a, a, I'm not going to say fresh off of swingers, but pretty fresh off of swingers, Vince Vaughn. Um, looking slightly less puffy and hungover in this. Like he, right. It looked like (laughs) he lost, (laughs) he lost a little weight. Looked like he was a little rough. Um, it's, it's like four years post swingers. He'd done his guest turn in Jurassic park at this point. So, I mean, he's, He's established, but the movie that he made right before this was the Psycho remake with um, Gus Van Sant. So 
yeah, it's it's a it's a rough time uh, in Vince Vince Vaughn's career, and he's trying to climb out of it. And quite frankly, he's very good in this as the sort of weathered and beset upon FBI agent trying yep. to catch the serial. For what it's worth, uh, I like Vince Vaughn. I just think he makes a lot of bad oh, yeah. decisions. A lot of people, you know, he was in True Detective season two, um, which felt like a big swing for Vince Vaughn for me to do because. He doesn't do a ton of TV. He does sometimes, but um, you know, so, so true detective felt like a big swing from him. And I really liked him in true detective season two. He may have been one of the best parts of two detective season two. Um, and so I, I like seeing him when he is, is sort of playing characters outside of this comedy mold that he feels so comfortable sort of sliding back into the wedding crashers, Vince Vaughn, you know, um, the dodgeball Vince Vaughn. <laughs> and so it, it's really nice to see him in this. And he does, he does a fine job with it. I think um, we also get Jake Weber. Um, I guess most people probably know as, as the husband from medium. Um, but he's, he's done a lot of stuff. I like Jake Weber. He's one of the FBI agents in this uh, Dylan Baker, who is great. I mean, Dylan Baker may be like the most, Hey, I know that guy in all of films because he's just been in everything. I mean, his filmography is nuts. Uh, so uh, Dylan Baker's great. He plays the inventor of this uh, virtual reality technology that allows um, people to enter each other's minds. Uh, Cause I guess, uh, well, I, we haven't even talked about the concept <laughs> we, of the film. We yet. haven't even talked about um, the movie yet, but like uh, Dean Norris is in this. He's got a brief role in a, in a blink as you'll and blink and you'll miss it. Peter Sarsgaard. Love that. Uh, who plays the boyfriend of uh, the, the the kidnap victim that they're trying to find? Uh, so some really great cast members. This is acted well. We're going to get into it, but it's directed extremely well. Like this, this movie looks phenomenal. No shot is throwaway. Like everything is carefully planned. It's a bit Fincher-esque, honestly. Like it it feels a bit along those lines. I mean, Tarsum has his own visual flair, his own flavor, hundred percent, but it just has that same level of craft that you expect from somebody like David Fincher in terms of setting up shots, blending your shots together transitions. Oh my God, this movie has crazy transitions yeah. uh, between scenes that are great. Um, but let's, let's lay out the premise before we get too deep into it. Um, so Jennifer Lopez plays, what is it? Catherine Dean, a uh, child psychologist who has been called in to assist in the rehabilitation of a comatose little boy. Um, and so to facilitate this, her, his extremely wealthy parents have paid a, a research team to develop a sort of virtual reality brain weaving system, right? And so they allow people to enter into each other's consciousnesses. Uh, and Catherine has been working with this young boy to try and help him overcome a trauma uh, that seems to have centered around a drowning. Like he drowned and went into this coma and, and is stuck inside his head. He's alive. There's brain function, there's brain activity, but he won't wake. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the, the technology component of this film running concurrent to that. We have the FBI hunting for a serial killer who has a very specific MO where he turns his victims into dolls. Um, he like bleaches their skin white. He, you know, does all of these crazy things and, and he's increasing in frequency 
and and they're trying to find him and catch him. And so that's sort of the 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 initial A B story. A third storyline gets introduced as we we continue on. Which again, this is a complex film for your first time out the gate. Um, Tarsim obviously seemed invested in the ideas of this film and wanting to play with them, and he brings a lot of his um, a lot of his expertise to bear. Um, so really what, what sets this film apart is that the killer gets captured almost immediately, really at the end of act one, which is nuts, right? That just never happens in these movies as, as procedurals go. Um, but that's because we really need to get into phase three where Catherine is asked by the FBI to use this virtual reality technology to try and determine from the killer where his final victim is being housed. Um, because they know that she has sort of a set amount of time that he keeps them alive. And if they don't get to her in time, she's she's destined to die. And they're trying to stop that. Uh, so a very cool premise. We got the ticking clock element where, you know, oh, we you know, things are counting down. We've got to move fast. We have this interesting technological component of the virtual reality system. And sort of how does that get represented and sort of opens up the filmmaking techniques for all kinds of interesting stuff just quite a bit. Like there's a lot going on with this film. And, and as you said, it's a sort of non-standard film, even at this time, nobody was making stuff like this. Uh, I guess worth noting that was written by uh, Mark Protasevich and Protasevich is really interesting dude. He has not made many films, not written many films. Um, Notably after this, he wrote the script for the Will Smith. I am legend film, which I think is actually pretty good. Um, everyone it's not a great loves film that by movie. any stretch. What's that? Everyone loves that movie. People have really um, fond memories and feelings about it. And I it think it came out at like a really ideal time, both in Will Smith's career and in just like what was going on with movies. That it had that blockbuster feel, but then it was sort of a dodge, and it wasn't actually a like a blockbuster at all. It's this really small movie about this crazy dude who lives in a house and fights vampires. Like, and and that ended up being a bit of a twist surprise. Um, he has a story credit on Thor. So he has dipped his toes into the Marvel universe. Um, again, probably from like a previous script that had been developed. Apparently Protasevich did a lot of script punch up and sort of like, we're trying to get this project off the ground, put together something. Uh, supposedly he did a, um, screenplay for a movie called that was eventually came known as Batman unchained. Uh, which got shelved when the Christian Bale stuff kicked off, you know, so just, he's kind of like had his, he's been around for a while. Um, now he, he was also a co-producer and, and writer on the uh, Josh Brolin old boy adaptation. Ooh. So, Ooh, Ooh, ouch. Oh. Ouch. Large size. Ouch. Ooh. Yeah. There was a bit of an oof there, uh, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't know why anybody expected that would ever be a good idea. No, I like, mean, the original old boy is perfectly fine. Like it, you have no reason perfectly to perfectly fine that film. and perfect. Like you yeah, can't, like, you, and you can't make an American adaptation of a Park Chan-wook movie. I just don't think you can. I don't believe it, it. the core ideas of old boy are so embedded in the culture of Korea that I just, they I changed the ending. They did. And yes. it was, um, it was incomprehensibly stupid. You, because ew. Ew. No. Ew. Yeah. Oh, exactly. my God. 
Um, Sorry, movie. you just but really anyway, so touched on a sensitive topic <laughs> for me, like bringing up old boy. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I needled you with my proto savage ah. Um, but yeah, so this is an interesting film. Uh, I, I do want to briefly talk about Tarsim Singh's career. Uh, we may have another film or two of his that we we throw out there. Tarsim Singh has not made many feature films. Honestly, after the cell, he's not had a tremendous amount of success. I'd say the biggest success that he had after this was actually the Henry Cavill uh, starring Immortals film, which was like the weird um, sort of sideways take on Greek mythology uh, where uh, Cavill played was Theseus. Yeah. You know, and, I didn't uh, see I've, it. <laughs> um, I have it on Blu-ray. It's, it's a fine film. It's amazing. Uh, the most distinctive scene in it is they do, um, you know, there's always been that story about the, um, the brass, cow that was heated up and then they would put people inside it to torture them to death well they had a scene in that movie with where that happening to people so that was like eh, wow nah, all right you know what have you um i mean it it kind of was writing it was it came out of like the 300 coattails and uh the clash of the titans rebake movies with sam worthington were all happening around that time um so it's it's fine but that made about 230 million on a $75 million budget. So that was also pretty successful. Um, but, you know, he, he has not had a super successful, you know, film career in the, the grand sense of things. Uh, he did make the mirror, mirror snow white adaptation that came out. Um, was it 2010 or something? Uh, 2012, somewhere around there had Julia Roberts in it as the evil witch. And again, very visually sumptuous, but it's, it's just snow white. Like, I don't, I, yeah, what are you expecting? Like, you know, had Lily Collins as Snow White. I guess that's a thing that people were excited about. That's Maybe. a thing people wanted to see. Someone wanted to see that, I'm sure. Somebody wanted to see that. Um, I, I didn't. Um, but, you know, it's out there on streaming services. You can go check that out if you want. And, and then he made Selfless in 2015, which uh, was with Ryan Reynolds and Ben Kingsley. Um Nobody saw that one. Like it, it <laughs> barely made its budget back. Um, is interesting concept. I think it, I want to say it was like a Philip K. Dick concept. Maybe not. Probably not. Um, but just kind of like a an, another movie like has a lot of stuff taking place inside a person's head. That kind of thing. It, it was fine. But yeah, I. So Tarsim's career is strange. But Tarsim made one other film, and if he only ever made The Cell. In this one other film, mm-hmm. I would still call him one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Mm-hmm. And that second film is The Fall, which came out in 2006. Um, the Fall stars a very young and oh so sumptuous Lee Pace. My goodness. Um, yeah. I'm so glad that Lee was finally able to reveal that he's gay and that he's happily in a relationship and, and just in a good place because he's he's just so attractive he's just <laughs> such a he beautiful has, human being he has some of hollywood's um, best eyebrows just the my best. goodness yes uh i mean i was a huge pushing daisy's daisy's fan when that show was on i adored that show as i adored nearly everything that brian fuller has ever done and um it lee pace is is perfect in that show and he's perfect in just about everything he does um, I even liked him as Thranduil in The Hobbit. God damn it! He I was one of the only good for that all the time. The Hobbit. Yeah, I his he was fine. He was a good elf. God damn it! But so he made the fall, 
And The Fall was a film that he made while he was doing other work. He would just film stuff over the course of years, like several years. He would bring everybody together, basically on his own dime, and he would film this stuff. He showed it to David Fincher. David Fincher agreed to exec produce it and release it. It came out. No one saw it, which just pisses me off. Yeah, it criminally underperformed. Yeah, it's it's so good. Like, The Fall is so, so good. I, I can't even tell you how awesome that movie is. It's it's incredible. It has all of... Um, Tarsim Singh's films are full of recreations of modern art via film, right? He, like, does these little tableaus. He has these little, like, flashes of of modern art. You can tell he loves modern art. He he believes in visual design. And The Fall is just him kind of doing all of that stuff. There's so much like Salvador Dali representation in The Fall. There is again, just see The Fall. Find it if you can. That's the problem. It's very hard to find now. Um I have a Blu-ray of it that I bought when it came out and apparently now that Blu-ray is worth hundreds of dollars cuz it's out of print and there's no current plans to see it you know, put out again because no one knows uh, it makes movie me exists. so sad because nobody knows it exists because it made like $3 million at the box office and it's a crime. It's a crime. Also one of the best child performances in the history of film. So cute. That and you know me, I don't like incredible. children. No, but she no, is adorable. I mean, you know, is she Elle Fanning? No, but she's better because she's like an actual child. She looks like an actual child. <laughs> she acts you know? like a child. Not a Great. not a child actor, but a child, and it it works really well. Um, we won't get into the fall here. I, I actually have the fall on our list to maybe do an episode about um, because more people need to know about it. Um, but even if you're you're watching the cell and being like, huh, I kind of like what this dude's throwing down, then just immediately go find a copy of the fall. Yeah. Even if you have to, you know, use less than acquire it. Means, <laughs> just go get Through it. Channels. Yes, the channels exist. Go find them and and acquire a copy of that film. No one's going to come after you, right? No film studio is going to be like oh, someone downloaded. If a anything, copy of the they're fall. probably just monitoring all of the torrents, being like, "Wow, somebody downloaded it." Wow. It's been it's been like fourteen years since the last time someone downloaded it's, this movie. It's time for a sequel. <laughs> uh, no, please no, no need for that. Uh, so yeah, just just an incredible film. Actually, some of the locations that we see in the cell um, repeat themselves in the fall. Um, he he brings some of them back, especially the some of the desert sequences, some of the red sands, um, things like that. But anyway, so Tarsim is this this incredibly stylistic visual director. I think that he brings a unique vision to pretty much every film he's done in one way or another. I think as time went on, he tried to get more house styly and it obviously didn't really help, but these films, uh, the cell and the fall specifically are just riddled with stuff that you quite literally have never seen before represented on screen. Not like this. And again, as, as champions of films that people should watch to enhance their understanding of film and their love of film, The Cell is worth watching for those visuals pretty much on their own. Um, the police procedural stuff and all that works really well too, but it's truly these sort of like next level visuals that make this movie sort of pop and, and will make it stick in your mind well after the fact. So, uh, so Tarsim is great. Uh, I wish he was making more stuff. He did direct a Lady Gaga video last year, which apparently was his first music video in a long time. 
So I don't know if that was like a, well, dude's got to get work or if it was like an actual, like, I oh, like I'm, Lady I'm, Gaga. I come back to this. I'm into it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he directed her 911 video, uh, which apparently was, was very good. But uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, let's get into the film itself. So um, before we do that, let's make, you know, sort of a quick recommendation before we start breaking down what actually happens in this, this very strange virtual reality serial killer hunt windows into the mind of a killer sort of film. So, so where are you at before we get into the, the deep dive? Um, it, it had been like 20 years since I'd seen this movie, um, which was a very disgusting realization on my part. Because I was like, well, this movie came out like, what, eight, nine years ago? No, it came out in the year of our Lord, 2000. 2080. And I saw it like in 2001-ish. And honestly, I I, yeah. I just never, never saw it again. Um, This is a great movie. It's parts of it have not aged well. You know, that's that's a consequence yeah. of just things being this old. Um, even though, again, I am disgusted that I'm even saying that. Uh, so, you know, there are going to be effects that maybe don't work anymore. There's, you know, some performances that are a little bit of a struggle. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez. Um, yeah. But this is a beautiful movie. And it's it's scary. And I think it does something interesting with the serial killer movie genre for once. Um, and I haven't really seen that many movies do it again. Um, but you know, we, we've been bringing up David Fincher. He was another one who took serial killer movies and was like, I'm going to do something different. And yeah, this is wonderful. So I think that you should see this film. Yeah. I, I, it's an easy recommend if, if you count the film seven as, as a film you enjoy, then this movie sort of falls right in line with that. Um, with some weird twists, obviously, but it it really is someone trying to understand a serial killer internally. Now, again, this film is very pop psychology, so I will throw that out there. If if you have an understanding of things like trauma, PTSD, childhood abuse, oh yeah, this is going to irritate the crap out of you because there's some there's some real they they don't necessarily understand that with the same complexity as we do now. And, and they're making some very blanket sort of ideas to try and communicate. But it's and still, this was it before, works. Yeah. This was before people wanted movies to be like better, I guess. Like we didn't expect so much from films, even just 20 years ago, where, you know, and that's a good and bad thing where we, we uphold aspects of, of filmmaking to like a higher standard maybe. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it got some things wrong, but it is just a movie. Right. And I think a lot of it comes down to, I mean, this is, this is post CSI, but it's <laughs> pre criminal minds, you know, Ugh. I mean like that explosion of the, you know, the, the psychological killer profiler idea in culture that made everybody think that they understood how this stuff works. Number one, that's part of the problem. But two, it's also, this is a film interpretation of those systems. Right. It's it's simplified. It lacks nuance like there's. 
you know, there's not a lot going on under the hood in terms of really understanding the psychology of somebody doing this. But it also is not a 12 episode premium drama airing this month on HBO Max. Right. So, you know, they have two hours, really less. I mean, this this is not a long movie, which, again, bravo. It's 107 minutes, not even two hours. Love it. You know, so the fact that they're trying to get this deep to understand, you know, this killer in and of itself is is sort of interesting for the time. Uh, so it's a huge recommend for me. I actually used to show components of this when I taught uh, psychology classes and we would talk about like, you know, perception and, you know, concept of reality, you know, things like that. We would, I would show some scenes from this, not much obviously, cause it's, it's pretty harsh film. Uh, but you know, we would, would use it as a jumping off point to discuss other concepts. Um, because this is, uh, you know, it, it does have a, a core science fiction conceit that is impossible, right? Which is the, the digital linking of two brains. Like that's not a thing. And it's never, I mean, I'm not going to say never, but it's probably not going to ever be a thing. But that should not so, be what our priority is in exactly. science. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have that, greater concerns at this point. Other stuff going on. Um, but in any case, you know, it, it is sort of built upon that. So there's an inherent unreality to the entire process. But um, it's a huge recommend for me. I've, I've seen this movie probably probably a dozen times um, over the course of, of my life. And I, I don't regret it. And I still find things about it as I watch it that I enjoy. You know, little tweaks to performance, little elements of, of especially things that D'Onofrio is doing. Um, his physical performance as Carl Strager, Starger, Starger, Stark. that's what it is. Um, his physical performance as Carl Starker is incredible, especially once we do get into some of the inside the mind segments and how he transforms both through the production design that Tarsum Singh is bringing, but also just his physical presence. Because D'Onofrio, it's easy to forget, is a really big guy. Yeah. Like, he is a powerful and intimidating dude. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and as, as like, one version of Carl Starger, he's, like, all inside himself. He's crouched over. He looks tiny and small. And then we get to see him in these other, you know, sort of ways as well. Um, so a huge recommend from me, um, if you haven't seen this film and you don't want to hear us break it down, I would definitely go try and find it, uh, streaming service wise. I don't think it's streaming for free anywhere. It is available for VOD rent on, you know, all the standard services and stuff. But again, uh, if you're a creative person and you know how to like use the internet, you know, see what you can do, see what you can find. Uh, it'd probably be all right. Uh, but in any case, uh, so let's, let's, you know, sort of get into the deep dive here and break down uh, the film. Um, so we, we open on this sort of desert sequence and immediately, I think the purpose is to sort of throw you off, right? Like I think Tarsim is working right away to be like, Oh, you don't have any idea what you're about to watch. Um, I guess it's also worth noting, probably should have noted this in the, the non-spoiler section, that the short, the the score in this was written by Howard Shore, uh, fresh off Lord of the Rings, nonetheless. And it's weird. Yeah. The music in this film is weird. Um, like intentionally show it. So it is it is cacophonous at almost every turn. Um, just layered and complicated and not at all what you would expect for a standard film score uh, 
especially in a film that is ostensibly just a serial killer hunt movie. Um, but it's very unique. You know, we get these, these sort of like, um, horns right off the bat that are just layered on top of each other. And it's, it's all very off putting. Like I say that to just say that the opening of this film is off putting. The imagery is off putting and strange. I mean, it's Jennifer Lopez in a white dress walking across red sand mountains. Jennifer Lopez, very off putting. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially very off putting. Um, now again, these, these hills, these sands, uh, Singh would use again in the fall uh, to, to great effect, but it, it is just this striking, stark environment um, to see. And so you kind of know visually and auditorially right away that something is off, something's wrong. Uh, then we get introduced to her patient, uh, a young boy, uh, what's his name? Edward Baines, uh, who, as we said you know earlier, suffered some kind of drowning incident and is now in a coma from which he can no longer awake. And so this is meant to be, I guess, her sort of finding him inside the wasteland that is his comatized, his comatose mind. And um, eventually they meet in this small desert. They have a short conversation about his fears. Uh, and apparently he is being possessed by and haunted by a boogeyman, right? So our first little horror jolt we get here uh, by Mucky Luck. And there's a little rhyme that they say. And, you know, it's, it's very cool. But at this point, like in the film, you have no idea what's going on, right? Especially if it's your first time. Like there's no, like what is happening, right? And I love films that are willing to push that a little bit, right? To sort of trust that the audience will figure out what we're doing without us having to have Jennifer Lopez walk into frame and say, ah, I see we've chosen this space for our virtual reality meeting today. Hmm. Let us perhaps enjoy this, you know, cold beverage and then like one appears or something like it's 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 done very cool um you know it, it tells just enough story to sort of get us where we need to go um but i love the opening of this film i think it's it's a, a super effective opening five to six minutes of screen time like it's very cool i agree super engaging Now, we also get introduced to, again, I think there's some interesting stuff going on with the production design. And so we get introduced to Catherine as a therapist, right? We don't know that that's what she is yet, but it's obvious that she's trying to reach out to the child. She's trying to sort of convince him to make different choices and is saddened when he sort of falls back into the traditional patterns. Here, unfortunately, I think is where Jennifer Lopez's, you know, weaknesses as an actress it's these moments that it's the most obvious like when she has to express we'll just call them complex emotions like disgust and frustration and all of these other things at the same time you know it's not bad it's when she has to appear human that issues arise <laughs> that's yes i mean, I mean like i don't want to hmm. i don't have a problem with jennifer lopez it's just not everybody has the acting bug not everybody has the thing no. that you need. I think she can be more palatable when she's in comedy movies. Cause it feels like that comes a little bit more naturally to her. Right. Um, yeah. But this, this serious tone, she really struggles with it. Yeah. This is a, to say that this is a sort of emotionally complex landscape is a bit of an understatement. 
Yeah. There's a lot going on under the hood in this film and in this character. Like she, as the, the psychiatrist, as the guide is, is sort of the supposed to be the stable point that everything in the film circles around. And that's a lot of weight to put on any actor. And, yeah. and especially for one that was really just getting started in their acting career. So I don't hold her at fault here. I think she does fine. I, I think she communicates the things she needs to communicate, but there's, there's certainly nuance that's being lost just built around the fact that she did not have a tremendous amount of skill at this point in her career. And so, you know, if her presence got the film made, then it's a net gain. I'm not going to be upset about it. It's yeah, fine. Honestly, the, the movie is so visually impressive. Like wherever she stumbles as an actress, who cares? <laughs> right. It, it's really, it's not that important um, to the overall purposes of what the film's trying to do. And honestly, she's surrounded and buoyed by so many solid actors in this film that I think that it, it helps to sort of minimize the effects. And I will right? say once, once we're inside the, the brain segments, she is beautiful like this. Yes. She's, yeah. she's just a, she's a beautiful woman and all of the costuming and makeup, it really takes advantage of the fact that she was dropped at gorgeous in 2000. Absolutely. And I was actually going to on my last watch through, I was going to count how many costume changes she has in this film. I, I, I didn't cause I was just absorbed in watching the film, but I want to say it's close to 30. Costume it's a, changes it's, a month. It's, like, <laughs> it's, it's nuts how much they do. I mean, I'm like, I think of being a costumer for a movie like this, how much fun that would be of oh, yeah. just, you can go limit. absolutely yeah. crazy and you have this sort of perfect mannequin to sculpt all of these amazing outfits on not that she's a mannequin i'm not that that was mean i'm sorry i I mean but in in some ways i mean and this is something that a lot of directors don't like to talk about because they have tremendous respect for their actors and know how much of a partnership it is but in in some ways an actor is just another prop in a director's tool set it depends on on what kind of filmmaker you are you know if you're if you're the type of filmmaker who teases out performances and like, that's your thing to get the best possible emotional engagement. If, uh, then that, that wouldn't make any sense, but like, clearly that's not what this movie is doing. No, no. I mean, you know, they Stanley Kubrick is it. probably the, the most <laughs> <laughs> Stanley Kubrick is probably the most obvious example of the, the actor as prop, you know, sort of thing where he's yeah. just, you just need to do what I want you to do kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and I don't get that impression from this at all, but I mean, at the end of the day, they, they do have to be costumed. They have to be positioned, you know, they've got to be like, you know, Hey, this is what we're doing. And I, I think I have a lot more respect for directors that do that as a collaboration rather than as a commanding performance kind of thing. But, you know, but speaking of, of being, you know, molded when we flash out of the VR environment, we're introduced to the technology that they use this, you know, virtual reality system and they hang suspended from hooks. And this is an extremely visually compelling uh, thing. I, I love these, this. I love those these suits. crazy suits that look like muscle. Uh, they, they're kind of reminiscent of the armor that Vlad the Impaler wears in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola one. Uh, it's sort of the same vibe. Like They're obviously kind of silicone, plasticky, 
but they're the I, I you know they're meant to be I suppose these sort of like full body responsive suits where you can get the the feedback on what you're doing and blah blah blah. And so you're in sort of it, it's almost like a um um sensory deprivation chamber kind of thing. Like they're simulating that. So very cool from a production design standpoint. You see that you know one person gets hung on one side, the person gets hung on the other, and then they put these like claws over their eyes that connect them and we could do get a, a visual of what that looks like for I don't I don't understand how later. that would ever work makes no sense but it none looks at all neat. it's creepy <laughs> it looks neat and it has kind of this classical feel to it that makes it feel somehow more weighty and real um so then we get introduced to the two scientists who have created the technology played by Dylan Baker and uh, Marianne John Baptiste um actors again probably two actors that you look at and go like yeah I've seen them in things like just very recognizable faces, but they play the two scientists that have created this technology. She comes out, they have to say a little, a little um, phrase, like a little poem to, to reconnect to the real world. They have these cool things that come up and sort of allow their bodies to be supported so they can be unhooked from all of these wires and stuff. Very cool, really interesting, awesome looking, you know, production design, awesome looking suits. Uh, And again, technology, it almost seems like they knew this isn't at all how this stuff would work, but we think it looks cool and we're just going to run with it. <laughs> and we're going to trust that the audience again, just sort of understands what we're doing. And I think that that comes across very well. Um, so things slow down a bit after we kind of come out of the VR world and we get more information about what Jennifer Lopez's character is actually doing, which is attempting this sort of virtual therapy with this young kid. Um, it's all being paid for by some billionaire industrialist or whatever. And he is, is growing displeased with the lack of results, right? They've been doing this for like a year or something and like, they're not getting anywhere. And, uh, the dad is what Patrick, uh, Bashao or Bashao? Uh, the guy from Carnival from Carnival. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cause he did Carnival right after this yeah. and, and he's great in Carnival. Um, but yeah, so uh, a great French actor plays the industrialist and, and he's just sort of reckoning if they don't start getting results, he's going to have to shut this down. It's just too expensive. And of course we get that provides several scenes for JLo to make impassioned pleas and like, Hey, you got to understand this. It's a long process. And, you know, from a script standpoint, it allows us to establish that she's not, you know, doing this for money. She really cares about the kid. She's a good person. A lot of stuff going on here very quickly. I mean, again, in, in screenwriting 101, this is the kind of scene you insert because you need to build your main character, right? Um, we, we need people to understand sort of who she is and what she's trying to do. And and I think it works. Like, again, it's fine. Lopez, I think, is, is pretty good in these scenes for the most part. No major issues with her performances here. But um, So that comes to an end. We know their program is in peril. They need to prove that they are capable of doing the things that they believe they can do. And faith is waning in their project. Uh, but so then we quick cut to D'Onofrio in a old Ford truck heading to a mysterious silo in, in, in the middle of nowhere. This beautiful, beautiful white albino pup pup. That dog. Uh, and we find out. That dog is uh, yeah, adorable. It's a pretty cool dog, man. Did you know his name was Tim? I did not. What a name for a dog. Because that means that, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio was standing off screen saying, come here, Tim. Come here, Tim. And that makes me happy. Tim the dog. 
him the dog. Um, and so we, we get introduced to his serial killer character, Carl Stauger or Starger. Starger yeah. Um, and he is coming to check on his latest victim. And, and I like the way that this is all played out because it, they thought a lot about his methodology, how a guy would do this. Um, because he's obviously, he is physically strong, he's powerful, but yet he's obviously very reserved. But so in essence, his MO as a serial killer is that he traps these women in this sort of locked cage, like prison cell. He fills it with water slowly over time and then does not return until they are dead, right? He doesn't want to actually see them alive. He only wants to see them in this dead state. At least that's kind of, it sort of suggests that he struggles a lot with the guilt of what he's done. Yeah, there does seem to be that component. So he doesn't want to see them like alive and, and he like, he seems like at one point he's really scared of her while she's alive. (laughs) Like she freaks about. So there's kind of like he's removing himself from their presence while they're alive, I guess. Yeah. And almost like to try and, and hide the fact that he's responsible for their death. Right. Like, because that's part of it. I mean, I guess really what, if you want to get into this here, he, another component of this film that people probably found unsavory is that there is a, this is his sexual kink, right. Which gets revealed very quickly. Um, yeah. And, and you know, he, he sort of removes the body, he drains the water, he takes the body home and then he proceeds to clean them and, and dollify them. If you want to call them that. So he bleaches their body and their skin, their hair, um, and, and then his his final like release from the murder, uh, we find out that he has embedded uh, rings in his arms and leg and back, um, and he suspends himself over them while he has a, a sexual climax. Which is, uh, I mean, people really do this. They really suspend themselves with, this with rings and hooks. Um, this is maybe a little unfair to people who are into that because I don't think a lot of them are serial murderers. It doesn't <laughs> like seem this, so. Yeah. And this was a thing in the early 2000s was just misunderstanding kink and what it is. And BDSM. Yeah. And BDSM. All of that was, and was just not a thing that Like, clearly, understood. murderers do this. Um, which right. now, you know, we know that that's not, that's not true. No, um, not really true. So, so yeah, that, that part was a little bit, like, edging on cringe, because now you're looking back, like, why did we ever think that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with a lot of that serial killer fiction yeah, played on on sexual fetishes that people just probably read about in an article, you know, and yeah. being like, "Oh, that's weird," and, and then they develop it into this thing where it becomes this murderous intent. When in reality, it's it's not, you know, most of the time. But again, BDSM at this point in the early two thousands was something that was was becoming more visible. Like people were were sort of doing more in the public space where BDSM was concerned, obviously, you know, I mean, to reference the matrix again, matrix is rife with BDSM imagery. Um, you know, so it was starting to sort of enter the public consciousness, but it was not yet fully understood. So it was this mysterious, weird, strange thing that people do. And, Oh, the people who do this must be monsters, you know, (laughs) that kind of dumb stuff. Um, it's, it's sort of inevitably the, the initial blowback reaction when the general public runs into something from a subculture. See also CSI's now infamous furry episode. There you go. 
right? <laughs> the tragedy of the furries. Um, so yes, it, it, but in, in the fact that this film is even dealing with that or having that as a component is, is intriguing. It's obviously visually interesting. It parallels with the, the hanging that they do to do the virtual reality thing. So there's this interesting parallel there. Um, and they do sort of explain it in the story later, like why all of these things provide him with some measure of comfort because the other sort of like pop psychology thing that they explore, of course, is that this serial killer was horrifically abused as a child, um, by a, a heavily abusive father and that he has compartmentalized all of these ideas, um, to try and reckon with that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, basically. Um, and again, that's not very nuanced. It's not handled extremely well. Most of that is revealed in like music video style flashback reveals. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's definitely some things here that if somebody were to remake the cell today, we would have to spend a lot more time sort of reconciling and understanding what those things are and where they come from. And, you know, maybe, or maybe going the opposite direction would be better. Like I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the, every serial killer has like a maaudlin melancholy backstory that justifies what they do. Not only does that generate empathy where it doesn't belong. um, Sexy Dahmer. It also has the reverse effect of making people think that anyone who's abused has the capacity to become a monster. Totally. Yes. The inverse must also be possible. Yeah. You know? like, and, and that's and, just, it's, it's a slippery slope upon which we place ourselves. Right. And it's, it's just something that again, with our current understanding of our current cultural understanding of the psychology of things like this, I think there's, there's room here for a more nuanced and careful take on how this would be presented. But this, again, this is the pop psychology of the two thousands. This is the kind of like very basic, very straightforward look that, that would have been common at the time. Like this film is not doing anything that wouldn't have been done like this elsewhere. (laughs) Um, And so again, I wish it was better, but what we've got is still intriguing at the very least. Uh, so we do get a fairly detailed scene of D'Onofrio reviewing the videotape of, you know, the woman as she dies and then, you know, coming to climax over her, her dollified body. Uh, then hard shift into police procedural. And honestly, I feel like Tarsum's got some skill at this. I, I feel like this this scene where all of these FBI agents are coming together at the site of his most recent victim's disposal um, or, or the, you know where he dumped the body, um, I feel like this is really good. It opens with this really great crane shot over the, the overpass that's like wide. It looks really great. And, and then very quick into, you know, Vince Vaughn gets introduced. Jake Weber gets introduced. Um, and I, the guy I... that plays... Uh, is it James Gammon that plays their kind of boss, the dude in the hat? Um, because he did all kinds of TV stuff. He was all over yes, the place. yes. Um, it's just it, he's one of those dudes you may not recognize his face, but you'll know his voice because <laughs> he just had so many character, you know, little character bits here and there. Um, but uh, so James Gammon kind of plays their their boss, 
and and they are are researching this and again just some really cool shots like when they all look over the edge to see the body down below get this really great like you know sort of uh, pan up like it's it's just and he switches up his camera angles depending on which which characters were with mm-hmm. like um you have all of these kind of intense examination shots like the one where they're looking over the edge when the police are are sort of the the focus and then when we switch to like starger scenes everything becomes like surveillance footage where it's really mm-hmm. zoomed out and it feels like it's very disconnected and, and distant from whoever's in frame it's fascinating it's it's extremely thoughtful across the board you know it's something that i would ascribe you know i mean again i i know the shine has come off Christopher Nolan a little bit in the last five or six years or so. But one of the things that I love about Christopher Nolan's films is that you can see the sort of mechanical underpinnings of how they work, right? He, he's not trying to hide just how meticulous he is with everything. And, and Tarsim has that same kind of vibe. He's like, no, I, I want you to see how carefully I've plotted this shot. Um, you know, whether it's the, Oh, that, that early shot of the second victim sitting at the fountain and it's yes. that surveillance, that's like that surveillance footage style that you're talking about, but you see the, the sort of ring around the fountain that sort of like closes her in. Mm-hmm. Like That's very careful, right? That's very specific. That's not just, Oh, we found this cool fountain. That's like, it has these geographic details. It has these geometric details that I need. And like, it's, it's all very carefully considered. And that's, I mean, I think that's just shown in his choices. Like, where the place where they actually do the asking of Catherine to um, like, you know, we want you to be a part of this. That's in Spain. Like he flew them to Spain to shoot that scene at this spot because it had like the specific (laughs) geometry that he wanted, you know, like that's crazy. You know, like you're in Los Angeles or Vancouver or wherever you're filming this thing, you know, you can find a building that'll work. But no. he had like these very <laughs> specific ideas about what he was looking for. Um, so the the plot again develops very rapidly. This is a non-standard serial killer procedural in that they capture the serial killer almost immediately. Um, and I love this because it is very CSI. It's very much like, oh, we found this one piece of evidence we can't explain. And it's the dog, right? They find a hair from the dog that lets them know it's an albino. They start hunting for people who had bought albino dogs in the area and they find him. But again, here's where the film throws a dodge from a plot standpoint in that they go in, they catch him. There's this ornately developed scene of them, like getting ready to storm this guy's house. And we've already seen that he's had some kind of seizure in the bathtub and he's gone, right? Like he's not, they capture him but he wasn't going to be there to begin with. Yeah. But I love how much meticulous time they take because given that the, you know, the home invasion that they do is, is a nothing burger. Like it, it, it amounts to nothing to see all these cops like storm the building. But at the same time, it, it helps build all of this tension and show like just how desperate they are to capture this guy. Um, you know, so they get into his house. They, um, you know, it's discover weird. all his equipment. It's <laughs> very weird. There's chopped up dolls everywhere. Again, this is like, I don't know. I, I'm always very cautious of these orgy of evidence scenes. You know, 
like I know they're essential for this type of storytelling that you have to have these artifacts that you can show. I mean, the film is a visual medium. You have to be able to shoot things. You know, it can't just. But seven ruined us. It did. Because like (laughs) we got to see all this weird shit now, right? Like if you find the killer's space, it's just going to be full of nothing but weird ass shit. And, and this one is definitely, it fits that bill. Like he's got dolls everywhere where they see his big chain apparatus at the bottom you know, so they have everything that they need, but I think it's also Tarson being like, well, we built all this stuff. There are some clues here for where we're headed next. So that's important. But at the same time, we're, it's almost like he's like, we're just going to deal with this now because we're just getting started. Like this would have been what we found at the end of a normal movie like this. We're showing this to you at 20 minutes in or 30 minutes in. Because, oh my God, you have no idea where we're headed. And I kind of love that. It's it's almost like he's upping his own ante in the film. Like no one in the audience would have expected it. But he himself is like, okay, we got to dispense with all this like serial killer trapping stuff. And we got to get to the real film, which is what's inside this dude's head, uh, which is where it goes. So Starger suffers. What do they find out? He's got some kind of like, he has like a brain injury. Right. He's like got an aneurysm or something, too. Yeah. It's one of those like it could have happened at any time. Right. Like he always had this. And maybe I I don't like the insinuation that that may be the root cause of where all this comes from. Like that, too, is like. But I do like that the doctor giving us this information is Pruitt Taylor Vance. It is. Man, what a what a run that dude had in the 2000s. My goodness. I just. Um. I love in him. the 1990s, really. He's Mississippi Burning, Jacob's Ladder. I mean, he was he was all over the place. Um, Anytime I see that I, dude, I I'm happy. Constantine. Yeah, so he's he's going through it, talking about the brain injury. Um, but basically, Starger has has had a severe traumatic brain incident, and he, for all intents and purposes, is brain dead. He's not brain dead. There's still activity, but he will never wake up. He will never be able to share the information about where his victim is being housed. All of that is gone. Which I kind of love how anticlimactic that is. Like even when they find his body in the house, the music cuts out. All of the tension is just robbed of the scene. They find him on the floor. He's he gone. (laughs) Like, yeah, they don't get their win. Yeah, they don't. You don't get anything. And it's it's great because that. That sucks. And it's it's almost like it robs the audience of something. But then you realize it's only been 30 minutes. So what now? So what now? Exactly. And that leads us to, you know, the sort of third storyline of the film. And and this doctor, of course, you know, he knows of this project or whatever. And he points them in that direction. And and so, of course, now our, our two disparate storylines come together. The FBI arrive at the billionaire industrialist's place of work or whatever and they pitch Catherine and the team on going into this guy's mind to try and figure out where this woman is and save her life uh so again the ticking clock element of this is subtly great right because it's this driving force we have no time you can't think about it you can't consider all the options we have to move we have to move we have to move and vincent vaughn does a great job being the sort of driving force behind that i think he's 
he's wearily intense, which I know doesn't make sense, but that's kind of the, the vibe that he gives here. It's almost like they decided that this dude hasn't slept in like six months, <laughs> but yet he has all of the same sort of internal fire. I think that's why Jake Weber's always with him is because Jake Weber looks like together, right? Like he, he looks like he's kind of like got it held together. Whereas Vince Vaughn has all the same capability as intensity, but he looks like he's just falling apart from the inside. Yeah. And it's cool. I mean, that's, it's, and that's it's his, really cool. That's his mystique as an actor. It kind of is, man. Falling just apart. That, that's just like, I, I'm just the lazy bum guy, you know? Um, so, you know, they agree, they wheel in Stargar's body and, and they prep him for, you know, the, the stuff. They find the hooks on his back, which I thought was really ironic. Like they find the places where he was chained and they, they sort of have a conversation about that, which I think is, is kind of intriguing uh, on the part, you know, is there uh, JLo even gives like the little explanation about that, doesn't she? Yeah. And it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. She says they enjoy the feeling of weightlessness and it's like, no, that's not why people do that. JLo. Yeah. It's it, again, <laughs> I mean, maybe some people do it for that reason, but I guarantee you most of them just like how it hurts. Sure. Yeah. The, the pain component of it. For yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> honestly, it feels like some of that stuff may have even gotten, I have a feeling there is a longer cut of this movie. I, I have no evidence of that and there's never really been discussions of it. There are some deleted scenes on the, the Blu-ray, you know, and stuff. So, I mean, there's certainly content that was cut, but it feels like some of the Stargirl stuff where they maybe explored some of the parts of his, his modus operandi more deeply did eventually get shaved probably for ratings. Cause it's, it's, I mean, this is an R, but some of this stuff, knowing how the MPA sort of reacts badly to this kind of thing. <laughs> I could see this, you know, them being like, Hey, you need to back off the, the, uh, the, the, the hook on the back stuff a little bit, guys. Like, I think we, I think we need to back. I don't think this is going to play in Poughkeepsie. If you know what I'm saying? You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but regardless, so really then the, the second phase of the film begins and, and we shift into Carl Starger's mind and man, the imagery here is hard to fully explain because most of it is dependent upon you expecting films to behave certain ways and to do certain things and then intentionally sort of being like, well, we're just not going to do that then. Yeah. yeah. Like not at all. Um, so the, the, we've seen a lot of like enter the digital world sequences at this point in film. Right. I mean, like, I think it's fair to say, you know, perhaps starting with Tron in 1982, where we mm -hmm. get all the weird fractals and, you know, like computer motherboard imagery <laughs> and stuff flying at the screen. He's like, he's going into the computer. Wow. Um, whoa. And, and so we've, we've gotten lots of those. The Matrix does it, too, you know, with the whole weird mirror stuff turning into digital bits. You know, we've, we've seen this. And so. Tarsum goes a completely different way with it. As, as we mentioned, they, they go in the, instead of wearing like virtual reality goggles, they have like a, they have like a, a piece of cloth over their faces. So they like yeah. go into the cloth. So now instead of seeing like weird, like fractally digital shit, we get all these like woven threads and inside all of the woven threads are like pieces of this guy's 
psyche, right? Dolls, underwater imagery, feeling trapped. And, and so we, the doctor had hinted that normally this kind of thing happens because you are underwater for too long. Is that right? Like when he's going over it, he's yeah. like, it can be triggered by anything. And and it kind of connects up to the kid who had the drowning incident and and mm-hmm. how there's there's similarities between those two. Right. Either way, this is an amazing transition. This is such a cool shot because basically we go through all these little threads and these dolls and stuff. And then we see this like doll like body under held underwater in like vines or whatever. And we get this 360 over the top, like, I guess technically it's, it's a pan. It's great. But it's Ah. it's 360 over the top of these people and it's, and it's Starger being baptized as a child. So I think we're supposed to indicate that it was this baptism that may have, may have triggered the, the brain issue and then sort of set him down this path. Maybe again, hard to say. But it's this 360 shot. We come up out of the water. We go all the way over the head of the boy being baptized. And then the camera flips over. So it's upside down and it goes back into the water. And then we follow a pair of legs down into the water that are obviously Carl Starger's legs. And then we come back up out of that and into a whole nother scene. Like it's disorienting and bewildering and strange all at the same time, but yet incredibly effective the world that we pan into is sideways. So everything has to then flip. Like this is a crazy camera move, like insane camera move. And it's all, I mean, it's not, it's all stitched together. It's not a single shot, but it's presented as a single shot. And by God, it's just something else, man. Like if you want to talk about needing to have something like disorient the audience, so you know, you're transitioning into a, a different space this fits the bill. And it's just so strange. Like, it's just so weird. Um, when JLo wakes up, she is in like a shroud of Turin or something. Like she's got a shroud over her face. That's like another version of her face. We have a little pie plate model of Carl Starger, Carl Starger's house at a distance. Like it's, it's, there's so much visual stuff thrown at you all at once that it's really kind of hard to take in. But yet it starts doing the very difficult work of building this guy's backstory, who he is, what he saw, what he did. Weird slow-mo shots. I mean, those shots of like drops of blood hitting uh, plants and like ladybugs flying off. It's just nuts. But it's it's really, really cool and highly effective at establishing this world. Um, Tarsim seems to, have a, seems to have a thing with stairs, like impossible stairways. He uses them in the fall as well. Um, and so, you know, JLo meets young Carl. So that's kind of what we're introduced to here is, is child version of Carl. Um, so in this movie, we're going to see several different versions of Carl. We're going to see, we've already seen like real world Carl, like Carl as he existed in the real world. Now we've just been introduced to young Carl, who's like 10 or 11. Then we're going to be introduced to uh, what, bad Carl. Like, I don't know what you want to call him, but like the... <laughs> the vile parts of Carl, like the murderous parts. And then sort of Carl aged up inside his mind. Like there's several versions of, of him that D'Onofrio is going to play. But then we get a live recreation of D 
Damien Hurst's work um, <laughs> with the vivisected horse. Uh, yep. And uh, and it's a thing. It's uh, it's something. Uh, basically, young Carl is in there. He's petting a horse. JLo comes in. She's like, I want to pet this horse. And she starts petting it, but then she sees that there are glass panels above it. The glass panels come down and they vivisect the horse into sections and then spread it apart so that you can view it. You know, like and body still works a lot. style. And it's it's living, yes. So you get to see its heart beating. Uh this is a this is a crazy special effect. Um And it's it's a little rough around the edges. Yes. It's not perfect by my But also standards. I don't really know what a still living vivisected horse would look like. So yeah, I don't really, I don't really I have, have to a give reference the movie point. credit. Like I think they did a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a reference point for that. It's, it's obviously <laughs> I don't want some... a reference point for that. <laughs> Let's try. No. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's meant to sort of represent that there are these dark exploratory components to, to Carl's mind. Uh, we get deeper into that. We see painting with all of his victims' faces. We get a lot of weird sort of slow-mo slash like quick ratcheting stuff. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, again, this a lot of the stuff that happens in this first sort of foray into Carl's mind feels very music video-y, like almost shot for shot stuff that Tarsim had done in his music videos. Um, we're introduced to kind of a gallery, right? Carl keeps all of his victims carefully and closely locked within his mind in these sort of grisly tableaus. I guess it's supposed to be almost like a brothel or something. Um, but, you know, just, just a lot of really fascinating imagery, not necessarily easy imagery. I mean, these are, are difficult things to see. Like a lot of the production design here is very dark, very, you know, twisted, if you want to <laughs> call it that. Um, but it's all meant to be reflective of how Carl sees his victims as these dolls, right? They're all like his, his dolls that he, you know, has manipulated to, to be exactly what he needs from them to achieve his sexual satisfaction or something. Yeah. Uh, so it's very grisly. I mean, you know, Jennifer Lopez is, is, you know, in the middle of this really almost being victimized herself by seeing all of it. Um, very strange. I mean, there's, there's really some stuff here that I would almost say would fit in a saw movie. <laughs> um, you know, if, if one was so inclined to put things like this in a saw movie, there's a lot of gears, you know, there's a lot of, um, it's just a lot of really messed up visuals across the board. Um, and, and everything, you know, everything being in slow motion really lets you sort of take it all in right for good or for ill. And, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's all effective. I, I can't say that it's not. Um, but it, it, it definitely will, will leave a striking impression. Yeah. I mean, this was really the movie's chance to, to um, establish how weird it wanted to be. Like, you know, you have to make an impact with the first time you show something like this. And I think it did. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it wants to sort of show you the strangeness inside of a human mind, right? It doesn't want you to feel comfortable because let's, let's be honest. Most movies that have scenes like this, where we go inside the mind of someone, whether they be a serial killer or just a regular person, they're generally still shot and presented as if it's the real world, 
right? Yeah. Maybe something's weird. Maybe we cut to some strange places that we weren't expecting, but the actual visuals are still going to be somewhat grounded, right? Not all the time, but a lot of the time. This one goes the exact opposite direction. It's like, no, everything's weird, right? Scale is messed up. Distance means nothing. You know, space Dreams means nothing. are weird. And that's right. Well, a lot of the inspiration for this comes from dreams. And I think that's very fair, um, especially since the people whose minds are being entered are in a comatose state. So yes. it makes perfect sense <laughs> that, right. that everything that is, is distorted. Make sense exactly. Makes sense. And, and that's the way it should be, because dreams are not necessarily sensible. I think I think we've convinced ourselves that dreams are sensible because you know, if you are capable of remembering your dreams, you're trying to imply you're, you're putting a logical structure on top of something that was probably not logical to begin with because your waking mind is now engaged and you're like, Oh, I remember these images. So it must've went together like this or represented this or had these moments when in reality, the dream itself probably wasn't anything like that. And so I, I really like that the visual language chosen here is one of just extreme I'm going to put you out of, of any sense that you understand what's happening here. Um, and that in and of itself is fascinating. So then we get our first big reveal of sort of like the bad Carl and man, this is such a, this is a cool set. This is a cool concept. Um, so as we know, Carl had the rings in his back and so we see those again, but this time the rings are connected to like these flowing, uh, tapestries, I guess. I, I don't know. Draperies on the walls. And as he, you know, ascends from his throne and comes down to meet Jennifer Lopez, um, he, you know, it starts sort pulling. Of stretches that fabric. Yeah. And it pulls and just, it looks cool. It looks like Vincent D'Onofrio looks so scary. He's very scary in this. Um, I guess we should say that she does have a way to get out of the dreams. She's got like this little diamond, I guess it's supposed to be a computer chip embedded in her finger. If she touches it in the dream, then they, she's supposed to wake up. Um, so he confronts her, you know, demands to know where she's from big and who bodybuilder lady dumps her in his chamber. <laughs> true. Yeah. There is the big bodybuilder lady. One of, I guess was one of Carl's victims. I, I pick don't, me up big lady. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it just carries her to this throne room and then she, she gets out, she runs. Uh, as as I think any of us would. And so that's sort yeah. of our first foray into Carl's mind. Um, but she does not really get any information that can assist. So, of course, we cut back. to. I like um, that she leaves immediately. I like that this freaks her out because it lets us know that, like, this is not a normal thing. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. this is not this what I usually going see. In, this lady's <laughs> been going in mines for a while now. She's never seen anything quite like this. Um you know, but we get the the ticking clock reinforcement. She goes and visits with Edward a bit, perhaps to try and calm herself, you know, and 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 basically I like that Vince Vaughn is now placed into a position where he has to ask this woman to go and subject herself to more trauma to try and save someone else. Yeah. And that that becomes sort of the emotional crux of the film um, is that like, I know this sucks and I know this is really bad and I know that you don't want to do it but we have literally no other choice. So please. And, and of course she agrees. Right. Um, and they have like a heartwarming touching scene about it. They do. And and this is where I think, you know, it's one of the better scenes that JLo, you know, that JLo performs. Um, and I think it's because she's playing very well off of Vince Vaughn, um, 
who, you know, it's, it's easy to forget that Vince Vaughn is capable of, of being a really good actor when he wants to be like, you know, it's kind of what I mentioned earlier. It's like, it's easy to forget that, you know, every once in a while he can really turn a good performance. Yeah. Like I said, I, th- I think he's a good actor. I think he just makes really, really bad decisions. Sure. About I, I what think he to got, star in. Yeah. He got pulled into a sort of comedy industrial complex early and, and found that that could be quite lucrative and then just stayed there probably too long. Um, but regardless, our second trip into Starger's mind, things go wrong pretty much from the start. Uh, we do get a nice little forced perspective shot as she enters the mind. She's she believes that something's gone wrong because they like bring his dog in to try and calm Carl down and then realizes that she didn't know she was in and she's in. And and nobody understands what's going on. But what's happened very rapidly, apparently, is that Carl has figured out how to manipulate this situation and, you know, another thing is, what she's is, experiencing. There's a suggestion she's never done this with someone who's not a child. Right. Yeah. So she's up against maybe a more intelligent person. So he has figured this game out like, ah, I know what's going on now. Exactly. And so, again, a lot of modern art representations, you know, some fairly famous paintings get recreated. Um, a lot of defying of gravity and, and logic. Uh, there's that really cool shot of her falling where everything, you know, they obviously shot it underwater and, you know, the dress is kind of flowing around her and all that stuff. It's, it's very cool. It's not J-Lo in that scene, not at all, um, you know, but it's, it still looks cool. Uh, but yeah, so so she now has to try and get out because she's not going to be able to escape this time. So here we, we meet young Carl again. We get more details about, you know, sort of what his life was like, the abuses that he suffered, um, you know, the, the violence he endured and, and JLo is forced to endure that as well. Um, we also get some recreations of his early kills uh, before he had systematized it and, and sort of the, the struggles that he had with, you know, keeping everything going, I suppose. Um, but D'Onofrio is, is really good here. Again, I'm, I'm not one for painting serial killers with sympathy, but he does, he is capable of finding a place inside of this character where you do have an awareness, at least that this guy is broken, but he's not necessarily asking for forgiveness, right? He's not looking to be absolved of anything. Um, not really, but yet he does have some depth here. And, and, you know, again, I think it's a good performance on D'Onofrio's part. Um, he's not really in this movie that much, which is sort of the shocking thing. After you watch it a few times, he's such a dominating force in the film that you think he's just in it constantly, but he's really not, he's not on screen a ton. I'm not going to say it's like a Hannibal Lecter, you know, he's Anthony Hopkins is only on screen for like 12 minutes or whatever. Like it's not that, but he for he the amount of screen time scenes. He right he doesn't have that many scenes and in the scenes that he does have he carves out a fairly interesting character um then goatman version of carl appears perhaps my favorite version of carl <laughs> um where his his hair has been fashioned into goat hair goat hair horns and um he's painted white and he's in like a weird he, he almost kind of looks like He's got like the big samurai pants. 
yeah like leather like almost, samurai pants <laughs> almost kind of kind of pyramid head-esque i don't know oh yeah i mean um, those games are all over this i you know I, I i think somebody at team silent saw this movie I'm, i really i could give so. you some names of people who i know <laughs> saw this and and well i mean like masahiro ito's art is very yes similar there's a just lot in of similarity here um um, I know we talk about Silent Hill a lot, but it, it really, I mean, these movies were coming out at the time when these people were crafting these visuals. And, the early and they 2000s were, were the greatest movies. era of mankind. We will never ascend <laughs> to that kind of greatness we would never again. go beyond. <laughs> um, but in essence, uh, Carl traps her inside. He puts one of his collars on her that, that sort of he uses to make his dolls his possession and, and traps her inside of his mind. Uh, you know, for the duration. So their only recourse is to send in Vince Vaughn. Oh yeah. Cause if there's anybody that you want responsible for saving you from your hellish mindscape, it's Vince Vaughn. It's the swingers guy. Really? Yeah. You'll let him into your head to save you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, again, I cannot, I, I, you know, I could just talk about every scene, you know, like, when when Vaughn enters, there's what there's those girls sitting in like a plowed I field with their mouths open. I mean, it's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting or something. Like it's just so cool. It's very music video-y. Again, I mean, we have to say that. Like this is the kind of imagery that you would see in '90s music videos. You know, just weird cuts to, you know, you think of like the heart-shaped box video, right? I mean, just the weird cuts that it would make to that stuff. Yeah. But it works like it's surprisingly good when he finds JLo. She's in this just incredible headpiece and she's been completely mollified and controlled by Carl turned into another doll, so to speak. She's got like that neck stretcher collar thing on. Yeah, man. Super cool. Again, the production design in this movie is just second to none. It is absolutely incredible even that room that they're in when they, he finds her like that there's like all the feathers in the ceiling almost like they're inside a bird it's it is out of this it's it's such it's stuff that is so out of this world that it is it is absolutely breathtaking at times and that's um, the room where we get golden carl we get king carl um <laughs> it's i mean again it's worth noting that tarsim singh is is Indian. He was born in India. Uh, he is a, a a Punjabi Sikh by birth. He is in all of his films, from the most corporate and normal to things like The Cell and The Fall, are thoroughly infused with the imagery of India, and not as like a it. It's it's not even like it's a controlling element necessarily. It's just there. It's just a part of the proceedings in a way that you just never see. You know, you just don't see filmmakers who are able to sort of bring this sort of personalized view to the world. And it's it's because staggering. where would this fit in your average Marvel movie? <laughs> where, yeah. like, where where could you put this? Yeah, like what you know, where could this go? And it's, it's just strikingly beautiful. Um, it's also very, uh, again, that this is a film. I, one of the, if you, if you just search for the cell on Google, the first question that comes up in like Google's little box of five commonly asked questions is, is the cell scary? 
right? And this is where you can say, yes, yes, it is. Um, because he puts Vince Vaughn on a torture rack and then wraps his intestines around a little spike and, and then is going to proceed to like unwind him, which is just fair, straight up. We've all thought about torture. it. Uh, yeah. I mean, but he does it. <laughs> he just does it. He's the first man that is like, you know, Vince Vaughn, do you know what you deserve? <laughs> it's this. Um, and so Vince Vaughn is able to revive uh, Catherine from her, her control by reminding her of what she had a, was it a brother? Yes. Um, and, and reminds him of, of his traumatic death, his un his untimely death. And so we get another piece of why Catherine does the work that she does because she herself has experienced trauma and loss and she wants to help other people navigate that using her skills. And so it's a nice character building moment would have been nice if it was sort of set up earlier and then paid off here. I guess maybe there are some, some conversations between her and Marianne John Baptiste. You could maybe indicate that that's what, they were talking about, but hard to say. Um, but it awakens her, and then she stabs Carl to, um, you know, signify that she's no longer under his control. Uh, and you know, the dream imagery continues. It there's this cool spinning box with LCD screens on it. I mean, I don't know, man. It's there's just so much we could talk about all this stuff. But ultimately, what um, what comes from this is while Vince Vaughn is in this mindscape, he sees the logo from the table that they found in his basement, uh, the Carver company logo. Um, and, and he realizes that it, it's, it's probably related to that. Like that's the piece of evidence that He's we need doing to solve. Big the, brain mental detective work, big brain detective work. Um, and then we get, uh, Jester D'Onofrio. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't know what to call it, but like <laughs> the clown <laughs> clown D'Onofrio, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it's enough to break the control so that they can get out of the, the virtual mind. They go and, and continue doing their investigative work and, and ultimately are able to determine that, uh, Starger was responsible. There was like a company, that he bought out like their, their equipment. And, and so that's how they're able to like find this stuff. And, and, and they, they rescue the girl just in time, but not before JLo gets, she, she uses a bunch of imagery from Carl's like diaries or something. And then she is able to construct for him, like a, a sort of perfect place that has all of the things that, have contributed to like the positive things in his life. Right. So she has like this almost mother Mary sort of saint. Yeah. She looks at like, garb, the, like a nun, <laughs> the Catholic trading cards. She, she right, looks at a bunch yeah. of that stuff and she looks at a bunch of the Catholic yeah. trading cards, you know, and, and, but Tarsum does this like overlay while they're having a conversation with all the DVD looks, menu. <laughs> yeah. The DVD menu does the same thing. Um, but it, it almost looks like, um, what would they be called? Like the, uh, the texts, like all of the, the side art that, um, is it illuminated text? Yeah. Illuminated text. Yeah. Like he does like, like illuminated text stuff over the top of it with all of this like beautiful imagery as they're talking. And, and 
in essence, Catherine wants to provide Carl with some sense of catharsis. So we kind of cycle through all the Carl versions. We get adult Carl where he actually is somewhat recalcitrant and, and sad about the things that he's become. But, you know, then again, we get snake man, Carl, (laughs) Uh, which is the final, the final version of Carl. Right. And he is in this, like, again, the production design of this is out of this world. Um, We get like this, he's in like this snake suit and he has all these like layers to it and armor. And, and it's his sort of final gasp to try and, and insist that he is, is still in control. And she has to like shoot him with a crossbow. I mean, it's, he has the world's most complicated nipple piercings. Very complicated. Where it's yes. got like this big bar that stretches his whole chest that connects to to the nipple rings, and then she mm-hmm. rips them out. Which you would yeah. think that like you wouldn't um, have nipple jewelry like that because it really just looks like a a pretty big risk to wear it. Yeah, I I would think that that would be the pinnacle of risk. <laughs> um, but she 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 gets dolled up in some kind of like viking garb i don't know it's it's very cool looking but it's sort of like badass j-lo but yeah she rips out the nipple clamps um or the nipple piercings in a very powerful scene it's a very powerful moment um and she's faced with like you know she has to decide to kill carl basically but we realized earlier in the film i guess that one version of carl affects all versions of carl like you can't you can't save the sweet little kid Carl without this was one thing that I really liked where it, it wasn't like he gets a, he gets a reprieve or he has any, any sympathy toward the end. Like this is him. She's not killing the bad guy. She's not killing the evil. She's killing him because he is evil. Right. Yes. He's again, there's a minor sort of redemptive moment that she gets to have with young Carl, but, but it's a whole person. Right. And I do like that choice. You know, you don't get to save the good and expel the evil because there's no good to save. Right. Like he's, he's gone. He bad. (laughs) And so, um, Vince Vaughn is able to track down the location. Um, and the, uh, the victim who we've, we've checked in with throughout the film, which I think is another smart choice that Tarsim makes. We're constantly kind of going back to her and seeing the state that she's in. Um, he finds her and she has figured out that she, there's like a pipe and she's figured out that if she can break that pipe, she can, you know, still breathe through it. So she's not dead yet. Um, and, uh, he gets to save her. We get some flashbacks. I know at the end to, um, the baptism. So again, sort of maybe reinforcing that that's where a lot of this started. Um, you know, it's, it's a nicely intercut scene. There's a lot of stuff happening here. It almost becomes that like too many story threads being resolved at once problem, but you know, it, it, it all kind of works out and, and Tarsus yeah. intercuts between them. Well, and enough the rest of I the movie has been doing that enough that it's not, it's not a huge shock or anything when it starts this sequence at the end. Totally. Yes. Um, so Carl gets, gets rebaptized and sort of layered underneath Carl in the real world is dying. Um, JLo is just mostly at this point, JLo is just sort of like ushering him to death. She's just like, I'm, I'm killing you, but it's what needs to happen kind of thing. Um, 
Vaughn saves the victim and that's a really, a really nice scene. He like shoots out the glass and then busts it apart and saves her at the last minute. Super cool. Like just a great sort of cathartic moment. Uh, Carl dies. JLo comes out of the, the VR system and you know, things resolve in as much as they can. Um, you know, we, we get some nice little shots of Carl's house, all of the like strange things that he had, the newspaper clippings, you know, to kind of like, we're trying to finally wrap up what this thing was and and who this guy was. And, you know, he died. So they're not really going to ever get the full spectrum of answers or anything. Um, but you know, Vaughn finds a picture of a guy getting his intestines removed in the same way his intestines were being removed. So it's kind of like, it really, really works. It, it's they're <laughs> just trying to connect up that everything that they experienced and saw in Carl's mind were things that, you know, you could find artifacts of in the real world, which is unnecessary. Like, I mean, I get it. I understand you want to sort of show where these ideas came from, that they weren't just generated inside of him. And again, that's a very sort of like 2000 serial killer you know, usual suspects. Oh, it was the coffee cup all along, you know, like that kind of thing. Well, there has to be, there has to be some panic on the behalf of like producers when they see a movie like this and they green light a movie like this. And they're like, what, what will people think? And should we help them at all? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like what, what solace can we offer our viewers at the end of this? Yeah. Is there any way that we can come back from this? I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, so the, the final scenes are Vince Vaughn sort of wrapping up his investigation. It's obvious that he and Jennifer Lopez, you know, have created a bond. They might be developing a relationship, although I like that the film doesn't really sort of have a definitive stance on that. Um, and then we see that JLo has adopted Carl's dog. Yay. The dog survives, which is good. Um, you know, the pup didn't do anything wrong. I get scared whenever pup, I pup. see a dog in a movie because I just movies are kind of like Stephen King at this point where it's like if there's a dog, that dog is going to die. Like, I just know something's going to happen to the dog. OK, so so here's the thing we mentioned before that Mark Protasevich wrote. I am legend. Uh, Barry famously in I am legend. Will Smith is forced to kill his own dog. Yes, and I hate it. Now, now our our father watches so much content. Uh, yeah. Just mountains of content. When that film came out, I asked him, hey, what did you think about that one? Right? Because he'd seen it on, on TV or HBO or something. I was like, yeah, what did you think about that? I thought it was okay. He's like, it killed the dog. And I was like, yeah. He's like, it wasn't good. <laughs> was like, that was his only comment so i was like oh i was like oh well, all right well, that may be some of the only proof that exists that i am my father's daughter because i yeah, just like i am i will write off any movie that kills a dog for just, just the worst reasons like why did you torture reasons. me like this i was like you're terrible you movie producer um but the the final catharsis of this right because obviously we've got to come back to Catherine's, you know sort of original goal which was to help the the young boy afflicted with the boogeyman with monkey luck come back to the world. And so we get a nice shot of them back in the desert, but this time snow is falling. I I guess that's supposed to be snow. I don't know. Uh, so snow <laughs> is falling because what Catherine has done is 
instead of going into the boy's mind, she has brought him into hers. That is the the breakthrough technique. Because I, I guess we forgot to mention that. that yeah, that they go is, into her mind. They go into her mind, and then Carl takes control of her Because mind. that's the only that's, way she can control what he sees and what happens. Right. That's the only way she can influence what the world is actually like and hopefully influence him to make, you know, to give her the information she needs. So we see that she's adopted the same technique with the young boy and he is, is more open to her now, now that the world is, is much more beautiful and less stark. So, uh, you know, so we fade to white, which I also think is kind of significant um, instead of fading to black. Cause I think we're supposed to be waking up instead of going to sleep. Right. Which I think is kind of an interesting choice just to, to cap it off. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the story. Uh, I, I don't think that it's an especially complicated story. I think there's actually room here for lots of additional nuance, but what is here, I think is a very compelling narrative. I, I think it's a watchable film. I think both the police procedural components and of course the internal, you know, sort of dream life sequences are just absolutely knocked out of the park. Some of it, Feels a bit music video-y, sure. Like uh, the the scene with the snake man at the end running through the trees feels a little music video-y. But like, it's um, not like watching Stigmata. You remember that movie? Oh, God, no. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Did I just ruin your night? <laughs> no, no. It's been a while since I thought about Stigmata. But, but... but like, you remember, that was a music video. That was a, that was like a new metal video. Yeah, it might as well have been. Uh, it indulged by in... One all of the bad Wainwright (laughs) in all of the bad music video tendencies. So, you know, this movie indulges in it a few times and it's not wall to wall bad instincts. No. And, and, you know, again, I think Singh makes some very good choices about dividing very clearly between, you know, the real world and the dream world, except, you know, when it's meant to cross over, but yeah, stigmata, the entire thing front to finish is, is just, you know, flash cuts, rapid edits, like just everything that in the late nineties, people coming out of the music video world, everything you didn't want them to do. Like, don't do this, please. Um, Whereas it seems like, you know, Sing was able to either by picking a better project or by just being more aware of sort of how film works. He was able to sort of navigate that a little bit more (laughs) cleanly. I think. Um, Yeah, man, that movie. Now, ironically, though, Stigmata starred Patricia Arquette. The Cell starred Jake Weber, who would then meet and become husband and wife on Medium. So really, it was destiny. That's true. <laughs> That's true. It's true. It's all it's true. You think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that might actually be worth a rewatch. Uh, every once in a while, you know how every once in a while you like feel the need to, to rewatch like End of Days, you know? Um, I struggle with that. More than I would like to admit, especially you know, every with once end in a while. Days. Every once in a while, it's like, you know, it's time for an end of days rewatch. I need to see Gabriel Byrne pretending to be Satan. I think I need I need to see that again. Uh, maybe Stigmata will, will fall into that same category. <laughs> Ew. Um, <laughs> man, that was bad Schwarzenegger. Holy cow. And that was also 1999. Stigmata and End of Days came out in the same year. Of course yeah. they did. Of course they did. And I prefer oh, end Peter of days. Hines. So, uh, oh yeah, definitely. You have to take that as you days, will. <laughs> at least Arnold punches some things in end of days. That's something. 
I mean, it's directed by Peter Hyams. It's not that bad. Oh, did you, uh, and this is a bit off the cuff. Did you hear about Albert Pion? No. Do you see that? Um, okay. So uh, anybody listening to this podcast who may, maybe enjoys bad movies, uh, you've probably seen the name Albert Pion. Um, he was a low budget film director in the eighties, nineties and, and early two thousands, probably most famous for directing the Jean Van, Jean-Claude Van Damme led cyborg. Um, hey. also the Olivier Grunier Gruner, I think Gruner is his last name film nemesis. Um, he also did the, I think it was a Corman backed, uh, version of captain America, the one with JD Salinger's kid is oh, Captain yeah. America and Ned Beatty. Oh, yeah. Um, so a low budget filmmaker extraordinaire, apparently by all accounts, a lovely human being. He just passed away, oh. uh, like a day or two ago as there was, we're recording this. Um, and just, uh, the, the red letter media guys did a breakdown of a couple of his films because his wife was putting out on social media, like, Hey, this isn't looking good. He's really enjoying people sharing about you know, interacting with his movies and liking his stuff. And so they put out a whole video devoted to Albert Pion and um, just a, a great director, but, you know, never found, you know, any sort of like mainstream commercial success, but, you know, Cyborg is a great movie. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's not a, it's not like, an it's a great classic. Watch. It's a good watch, man. Uh, and it's early Van Damme before he like had any hubris. I mean, he had plenty of hubris. Don't get me wrong, but like, this isn't like hard target. His head wasn't bond, up in right? the stratosphere or anything yet. Exactly. He was still like a struggling actor trying to get work. And, and so cyborg, he took it because that's exactly what it was. It was just <laughs> a paycheck. I'm sure. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's time to watch some, some Albert, some Albert Pion movies occasionally. Yeah. Um, but, uh, End of Days, of course, uh, the reason I reminded was, was directed by Peter Hyams, who started off as one of those guys who directed a bunch of those, but then eventually, like, you know, made it good and uh, was able to, to get up to the, the big time, so to speak, the big show, as they say. But, uh, but yeah, anyway. Um, all right. So any other any other final thoughts on The Cell? Like I said, I, I think this is a great sort of little known film. It, it did OK at the time, critically drubbed made enough money because of JLo's presence and probably a little bit of Vince Vaughn too, to, to be okay. So Tarson was able to get more work. Um, but this is to me just a kind of forgotten little movie. I don't think anybody talks about this one anymore. Um, and why would you in the landscape of serial killer dramas, we've got thousands of these things running around now. Um, but this one has such a unique spin on the entire process and, and sort of subverts it in some really fascinating and interesting ways that I think it's kind of essential. Um, I think it's it's one of those movies that I, I have a hard time saying that you, you shouldn't be aware of it. Like you need to be aware of it to sort of understand sort of where things have gone, right? Um, even just as an artifact of the late two th- of the early 2000s, late 90s, um, and what the serial killer drama would eventually become to entertainment. I think it's an interesting little artifact of that too. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of the same. I, I wish that Tarsum Singh would make more movies. Um, Mm, I know, I mean, this, this is one of those movies I watch and I think there's so much good about this that I, I would love to see movies like this be made now with all of the, advancements we've made in just making movies um Mm -hmm. i would love to see someone with with his sensibilities and with his visual style really go crazy again 
Um, so it's a very wistful watching experience where I, I just, I want more. And The Cell and The Fall were the only two great things that we got from him. And that sucks. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is a great movie. Like I said, it's it's one of my faves. I've seen it a dozen times or more. Like I said, um, it's it holds up under repeated watchings. I, I think it's it moves very swiftly. Again, I think this is from an era of film where you know the two hour movie was a no no for a lot of people. So I kind of appreciate that as well. You know, this doesn't really meander around. Everything matters, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, a must must watch for me. I, I think if you can find a copy of it, um, I know Blu-ray copies of it are pretty cheap. You can probably hunt, hunt one of those down if you're a physical media collector. Uh, otherwise, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd go to one of the streaming services or peruse any other available services you that you're aware of. You know how to find of. movies, listener. That's right. We'll find Come it. On. You know how. But, you know, for me, this this stands with seven and I mean, maybe even it's not Silence of the Lambs, but it's it's up there, though. You know, I mean, like it's in the same ballpark for me. Why um, not? I mean, at, at a certain point, we have to recognize that not every good movie could be made in the 70s or 80s. And like we have to allow for some of the ugliness of the early 2000s to also make its imprint on classic cinema because we're we're 20 years out from this shit. Yeah, we can't just pretend that 2000 to 2008 didn't happen. Yeah. We can't just be like, oh, but nobody made movies. Yeah. (laughs) No, that doesn't exist. It's like, no, they do. And it was a very particular time in filmmaking. And yes, unfortunately, a lot of those films have not stood the test of time in terms of quality. Right. But there are some they're out there, you know, Uh, and and maybe this this could rank as one of them, Uh, at least for us. It seems to. All right. So if anybody wants to find you on social media, um, if such a thing still exists in the post Twitter buyout world, uh, where could they find you? Uh, you can find the inner workings of my mind with a cloth over my face <laughs> on Baskinator at uh, Twitter. Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave it at Twitter for now before we yeah. get to it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm parking accounts in places just to kind of yeah, see like where you things can, go. You can find me anywhere and I'm, I'm always Baskinator or the Baskinator, but I'm still on Twitter for now. Same, same. So you can find me at T Baskin um, and that'll pretty much be where I am on most places from what I can tell. Um, and then for now, we're still just on Twitter as FPS theater. If you want to get us together or respond to the podcast itself. Um, but yeah, you can get us there and, uh, I'll park a few more accounts on some of the other up and comers, the mastodons, the hive socials, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, or maybe we'll just go back to having a website and just blogging person. <laughs> I think that's kind of where things are headed. I'm going to so get a I'm live take, journal. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, we're going to build a Tumblr. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, you'll be able to find us and we'll, we'll help you know where to hunt us down if you're so inclined. Uh, but yeah, so for us, uh, a hard recommend for the cell definitely take a look at this glorious little something starring jennifer lopez and directed by perhaps one of the most visionary directors of the last 20 years who just doesn't seem to make enough movies gosh darn it uh but yeah tarsim singh and uh and again while you're at it if you get a chance go ahead and try and find a copy of the fall i know it's easy to confuse the cell and the fall Um, But The Fall is also just a gem that we will probably talk about at some point in the near future on this podcast as well, because it, too, is criminal that more people have not seen that movie. 
Uh, but anyway, we will be back uh, in the very near future with more discussions of failure pieces. They can't all be masterpieces, but they might be a failure piece. Um, and we'll be back to discuss another movie from those ranks in the very near future. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.